with this. If you were to die tonight, and God was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond to that? What would you say to God? And then, of course, the whole point was to open up what the gospel is. the gospel of grace, the gospel of love and mercy. Not of our life, or our good works. And that was it. That's kind of what I call the ultimate jeopardy question. God was to ask you, what would you say? <clears throat> but there's, I think there's a better question that even goes along with that. If you were not to die tonight, and you were to live another 25 or 30 years, what kind of person would you want to become? How would you do that? Why do thousands of people go to health clubs, self-help books, motivational seminars, lose weight? Why do they do that? They want to change their lives. In one way or another, they want to change their lives. Desire for change, it seems, lies deep in the human heart. And it's motivated by hope. But you know and I know that the only person that we have the power to change is ourselves. We're not here to change other people. We only can change ourselves. And the entire hope of the gospel of grace is based on the truth that through the mercy and the grace and the love of God, people can change. You can change. I can change. We can change. Remember what we just sung? Change my heart, O God. Prayer out of Psalm 51, I think. And the good news is that God is in the business of this human transformation. And this idea of change is picked up in one New Testament word that if you don't know, you really need to know this morning. We use the word in English. It's the word metamorphosis. It means change from the inside out. And here are some verses where Paul talks about that metamorphosis. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we with unveiled faces, the whole story behind that phrase that I really don't have time for this morning. We reflect the Lord's glory and we're being transformed into His likeness. We're being metamorphosed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Galatians 4.19 My dear children, says Paul, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. He thinks of himself almost as a midwife giving birth of Christ into these, this church. Until he says, until Christ is formed or is morphed in you. Each one of us is in the process of spiritual birthing. We are pregnant with all the possibilities of spiritual growth and transformation. Romans 8.29 For God, for those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed, to be morphed into the likeness of his Son. <laughs> Romans 12 and 2 don't, be, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, undergo metamorphosis in your life, change from the inside out again, so that you will test and prove what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. And we need to understand that when this kind of metamorphosis is happening in us, it is not that we do right things. The deeper truth is that we are becoming a different kind of person on the inside. So that new and different actions in life can flow from our heart. The primary goal, the primary purpose of becoming a Christian is this metamorphosis, transformation in every aspect of the human experience so that we would never ever think about going back to an old way of living. That's why God has taken hold of your life. That's why God has taken hold of my life. Talking about just being saved and accepting Jesus so we can go to heaven one day is shallow 
If we never experience the life of being transformed, being metamorphosed, metamorphosed, that's the word, by His grace. So this morning, can I ask you, as you've chosen to come to worship together, one area of your life right now in which you would like to see change, real change, not just something superficial where next week you go back to old patterns again, but you would experience a change that is radical, deep-seated, fundamental, and permanent. The revolution that Jesus came 2,000 years ago is a revolution of the heart. But to change the thoughts and the ideas that shape us is perhaps the hardest of all human endeavors. So what is it in your life right now, because you've chosen to come this morning to worship and hear God's word, that you would like God to change in your life? I'm going to invite you to stand for a moment. Do you do that? And can you take a moment this morning, just bow your head with me, and say, Father, in my life right now, I've sung, change my heart, O God, make it ever new. What is that to be? Where do you want to reach your hand into my heart and turn something around? Can you close your eyes this morning and think about what that is? Bring that to the Father. Father, may this be a serious moment for us this morning. We're not just coming to church and going through the motions. We're asking you, here's where I want to change. And we're serious about that. Amen. Please be seated. Was there ever a time like this, when people lost sight of the Creator God and worshipped creation as though it was God? Yes, there was. Was there ever a time like this when sexual identity was so confused for some people? Yes, there was. Was there ever a time like this when people opened their lives to all and to any gods in search of spirituality? Yes, there was. Was there ever a time when Christians had to recognize and resist the invisible tentacles that culture sent forth to snare them every day? Yes, there was. That time was 2,000 years ago. And the place in the city was Rome. From Rome, the best trained legions the world has ever known marched out and conquered most of what today we call Europe. The Roman legions did something that Hitler was not able to do. To cross the English Channel and invade Britain. The Roman legions brought country after country under the heel of Roman authority. Everywhere it went, Rome left its martial footprint. Everywhere its armies made march. Its armies ruthlessly invaded lands. They marched across borders, planting the Roman insignia and standard everywhere they went. They dragged slaves back as trophies of their victories back to this imperial city of Rome. Resistance was futile. And if you attempted, it was met with the public display of crucifixion. The Romans may have invented crucifixion. But remember, God was the one who invented resurrection. Back home, the Senate, or the court, was the archetype of law and order that shaped society and jurisprudence for 2,000 years. Roman law. I, do we have any lawyers in the crowd? I think that 
Scottish law, where I come from, was based on Roman's law, Roman law. Am I right? Robert, you're saying, yes, it was. You're cautiously identifying yourself as a lawyer, but that's okay. That's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll love you. Back home in the capital, Rome was a place of great sensual pleasure. Every vice imaginable. Nero gave people chariot races in the daytime. He handed out vouchers for food and corn. Wild beasts and even slaves were given away as prizes. In the afternoon, you could attend gladiatorial games and watch trained slaves fight to the death. And in the evening, grand entertainment was on the menu every night. The entrees were wine, women, and song. In the latter days of the empire, Nero found that if you covered Christians with tar and tied them up high to poles and set them on fire, they made great lanterns for your garden party. The great temples of Rome, what was called the Pantheon, opened their doors to all, any and all guys. They didn't care. As long as you confessed Caesar is Lord, you could go worship anyone you want. So once again, we're going to get on the BCBC church bus. And we're going to stop in the city of Rome and see what the church had to be like in that city to survive. Against this background of political, sorry, military supremacy and political authority and sexual excess, Paul writes to a church about God's greatest work of grace that happened one day on a cross by a Roman governor against the enormous pressure of culture and society. A letter written to the church in Rome changed the world. It fueled the Reformation from a man like Martin Luther. Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew and the Gentile. And remember, people having to live in this city, Paul says to them, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, experience metamorphosis by the renewing of your mind. Catch that phrase. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Good, pleasing, perfect will. Paul says, do not conform any longer. An old translation is, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. We ask, do we know, did he understand what our world is like? Does he know the pressures I face every day? Oh, I think the Apostle Paul did in his day, and he does in our day. When I was growing up as a young Christian in Glasgow, this passage, don't conform to the pressures of this world. Every sermon, I think, on this passage addressed what we were not supposed to do. Places we were not supposed to go. We were not supposed to go dancing. We were not supposed to go to movies. We were not supposed to go to this place and that place. But can I say to you this morning that the spirit of our age comes in ideas and philosophies. Not in movie homes. And these philosophies move silently like the fog. And it has to do with the heart. So Paul's antidote to this seductive trap of our culture is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In one word, you're a Christian, think. Think. That's what's important. The center of this transformation is the, is the development of what is called the Christian mind. It has nothing to do with intellect. It has nothing to do whether you're going to college, university or not. 
We're not separating our head and our heart. God never asks us to choose between faith and an education, between a sharp mind and a warm heart. In Britain, 1963, a man called Harry Blamire's wrote a book. A little book that originals came out with an orange cover. I still have mine. I read it so many times. I tell you the truth. It is held together by a rubber band. Because the pages are all loose. This book was called The Christian Mind. And it started a whole series of books. I have many of them. On what it means to think like a Christian. What it means to develop a Christian mind. To think Christianly. And Harry Blamar says in this book, I think this quote is in your notes, the Christian mind is a mind of trained, informed, equipped to handle battle of a secular controversy within a framework of reference which is constructed of Christian presuppositions. And here's one sentence I'd love to stamp on every one of you this morning. The Christian mind is the prerequisite of Christian thinking. And Christian thinking is the prerequisite of Christian action. So our minds, our ability to love God, remember, with all our heart and soul and mind, is important because God is important. Loving God with our minds is a command. And one of the weaknesses and the impotence of the church today is that in a city, a church may grow numerically, but our influence and impact on society stays neutral or even drops. That displays our failure to think Christianly. The Christian mind, catch this, the Christian mind is the interchange of our fallen ideas from our culture. And we interchange them with the ideas which come from the heart and the mind of God which we find in the scriptures. We find the heart and mind of God in his word. And the Bible, by the way, is the transcript of how God thinks. How God thinks about everything. And so, we give off, one by one, we give the ideas of our old mind out. And we interchange them, we replace them with the ideas and the images that occupy the mind of God. His thoughts, which are too high for us to grasp, are put in images and histories and stories in the lives of people and events, successes and failures. So you understand, transformation calls for the exchanging the ideas and the images of a fallen world and exchanges them with the ideas and the thoughts of God. I'll give you this morning just very briefly four examples of this. They're not linear, you, they don't go in an order, you start anywhere you want. Perhaps the, the one that's closest to where you are, or walking, or struggling, or whatever, right now. But what it means to think like a Christian, and to think Christianly. When I start to think Christianly, I start to live sacramentally. One of the crucial interchanges is the interchange of thinking that life's two dimension. One is spiritual, God stuff, and the other one is secular, which is everything else. When we think like this, folks, we see everything in bits and pieces. And so we fail to connect God's truth to the realities of daily life. We fail to, to, to see the spiritual and the physical coming together. I said this to you before. God is not interested in your spiritual life. He's interested in all your life. In the, in the music you listen to, and what you watch on television and on the internet. He's interested in what you learn in college. He's interested in how you drive your car. Oops. 
He's interested in every fabric of who we are. He's interested in your life when you go to your work on Monday morning, go to school, or university, whatever. So there, there has to be a, an exchange between the dualistic life that we think about, God up there and we're down here, and rather we see all of life and every moment and every action, every piece, every place we want as something which God is interested in. There's a well-known quotation from a Dutch prime minister called Abraham Kuyper, in which he says, There is not one square inch about this entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, This is mine! This belongs to me! You see, the spirit of Rome said, Caesar is Lord! In the face of the cross, Christians dared to confess, Jesus is Lord! Caesar was Lord over everything as they saw it. The Christians say, Jesus is Lord over everything. <coughs> that may be an interchange you have to start to make. You say, you know, I never really thought about the fact that God is interested in every part of me and every part of my life. And when we start to do that, we start to live and think sacramentally. And if we start to live sacramentally, we'll start to live differently. Here's another one. When I start to think Christianly, I start to live supernaturally. One of the marks of the Christian mind is that we are more and more aware of the reality of the supernatural world. Life does not just consist of what we can touch and see and hear and smell. We need a supernatural perspective. One of the sins of Rome and Vancouver, even regarding creation, is that we don't really see the supernatural. Paul writes to Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal powers, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what is being made, so that people, he says, are without excuse. In other words, they did not really see the supernatural dimension. In Vancouver, people look at the mountains and say, Boy, I'm those mountains great. That's creation. Let's worship creation. Look at the sea and the sky. Let's worship creation. That's ironic. Because one of the words used in many of the BC ads on television and, and brochures to describe our province is the world, is the word supernatural. Our province says, this is supernatural BC. Meaning it's spectacular and stunning and impressive. We say it's supernatural means there's a creator God who is behind it all. So Christians have to think supernaturally about life and meaning. There's a dimension beyond our natural senses. This supernatural awareness and interchange happens on at least two levels. First of all, there's a supernatural interchange about the reality of God and His work and power. The more we immerse ourselves in the mind of God, the more we will realize that there's a supernatural world which is very real, but we can't see it. There's a great story back in Second Kings, just very, very quickly. Um, Elisha is in a place called Dothan. An army is sent to surround the city to trap him. And it says in Second Kings 6, Then he sent horses and chariots, a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. And then the servant of the man of, the man of God got up and went out the next morning. With, and he saw the army of horses and chariots surrounding him. And he said, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? 
He's saying, we're hooked. We're finished. The prophet says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Imagine what his servant thought about that. Just a minute. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. There's only you and me. There's a whole army of them. And then Elisha prayed. And he prayed what we sang a few minutes ago. Open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There's a supernatural world of the power of God that you and I have to learn to see and recognize. But there's another side to that. And that is to recognize that this supernatural universe has a dark side. There is evil in our world, and so the real battle is a spiritual battle for our minds, for our homes, for our children and families. When we start to think Christianly, we'll be, start to be aware of the reality of evil in its various disguises. Sometimes it comes in the seductive sweetness of Turkish delight, Narnia. It does not mean that we're looking for bogeymen under every rock. But there's a growing sensitivity and awareness to the presence of evil. It is a dangerous power. And most of all, we learn to recognize the strategies that Satan uses. Do you know that Satan seldom today makes a frontal attack? His very nature is seductive. He operates in disguise. Remember back in Genesis, when he tempted Eve in the garden, what did he simply use an idea? He said to her, don't be silly. You won't die. And that idea did the rest of the work in her. Don't be silly, you won't die. It says in the book of Corinthians, for such men are false apostles. Have I got this one up or not? I don't remember. Okay, there we are. Deceitful work in masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, there's the verse, no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Masquerades is the opposite to the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis means we're changed in character from the inside out. The word masquerades here has the idea that Satan on the outside is light, but his inside is darkness. It's a disguise. It's a phony. It's a fake. We get grandchildren who are growing up, and so we speak to our children about how to cross the road. How not to talk to strangers. We need to mind proof ourselves as Christians. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Jesus understood that when he faced Satan in the wilderness. He recognized the invitation to come over the dark side. His response, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. And every word that comes from the mouth of God, again and again, Jesus says, it is written, it is written. He knew and he understood the power and the authority of the scriptures. That's a Christian mind. So much more, another one. When I start to think Christianly, I start to live purposely with hope. Um, powerful ideas and images flood our mind every moment and uh, many of them are, are come from the advertising that bombards us here's an exercise this week think more deeply about the ads you see on television or in magazines they want to change your life 
And they'll promise you, you'll change your life um, if you use a different deodorant or a razor or some kind of gar- car that I drive. Sorry, those are guy examples. Okay? Ladies, you got to kind of work on your own examples. But they're saying if you use this kind of soap, you'll be a new and different person. No, you're not. You'll just be clean. Now think, can we ask ourselves deeper questions about our identity? Just being in sumer, am I simply a toy of the Vila company? How would a Christian mind think differently? How would new ideas and new purposes change me? Does everything in this world require instant gratification? Do we need to get a quick solution to the problem? And from that, do we believe that life will always be problem-free? No, it's not. You've got to think differently about things. Here's what Paul says in Romans. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering... Hard times produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. I know we believe very much in helping people through times of crisis and bearing burdens and all that, but can I say this to be careful, especially with regard to our children? It may not be good to help people out of some struggles too quickly. Here, let me take that from you. Here, I don't want you to struggle with that. Give it to me. Because God may have a purpose for their lives which will only be achieved and realized through that struggle. And even through their pain and difficulty. And if we take that away from our children too quickly, it may not help them to grow. We may actually interfere with what God is wanting to do in their lives. That's hope. And um, just this morning as I was stepping up, I... I, don't, I didn't bring my Bible out to the platform one day, so somebody help me. Who's got a Bible? You know those books that you're supposed to read and carry? Um, or iPads, I don't care. Romans 15, I think it's verse 4. Oh, now I have to read it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now I have to find Romans. It's somewhere in the second half. Um, Thank you. I'm teasing you, and that wasn't fair. The trouble with other Bibles is, you know what? I know where all the verses are in mine. And this one, the verses are in different places. Romans 15, verse 4. Hey, I got that right. Imagine that. <laughs> For everything that was written in the past, that means written in the Bible, was written to teach us so that, so that through the endurance and the, and the taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. That's where it comes from. That we will live with purpose. Last one. That's not easy, by the way. But understand that hope, says Paul, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. That's what God wants to give you. Last one. When I start to think Christianly, I start to live with gratitude. T.C. Chesterton once says, he asked these questions. He says, who does, who does an atheist think when things go well? Himself. He can't say, oh, thank God. He doesn't believe in God. Who, do, who does an atheist think when things go well? Our society is toxic with grumbling and complaining. Complaining for Christians means that we do not trust what God is doing in our lives or what God has given us. Complaining is that we do not trust God and so we don't know how to be thankful. The scriptures call us to change this 
toxic vomit in our society with the fragrance of thanksgiving. It's a good reason that one of the manifestations, one of the signs of being filled with the Spirit of God is not really how high we raise our hands or whether or not we speak in tongues. It is that we always give thanks to God the Father for everything. So in this sacred book of the Bible of stories of successes and failures, the pictures of Proverbs, the cry of the heart in the Psalms, letters written to churches, the journey into the future in Revelation, we find ideas and images that come from the heart of God, and they are there to drive out from our minds the images and the pictures of our culture, so that in this interchange, we will actually start to think differently. And if we think differently, we will live differently. The search for a mind that truly thinks like a Christian is ultimately our search for God. So Paul wrote this letter to these Christians having to stand against the greatest political power that was ever known. The greatest military might that ever walked across Europe. The greatest social structure that really was ever known in his world. They said, how are you going to live as a Christian? One word. Think. And think like a Christian. I invite you to stand. Now I ask you to do again this morning for these few seconds before we sing again. Be quiet in your heart and mind. We've sung earlier, change my heart of God. And can you think, how does God want to change my life? How do I need to change what I think about and how I think about it. And this week, where do I need to start and think sacramentally, supernaturally, purposely, and also thankfully? And we do all of that. We can do all of that because of the power of His love for us.